0: And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum?
1: Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony.
0: And I'm Maggie.
1: And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you've while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that, too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. And this is Rebel Girls Book Club, where today we are discussing a brand new book that just came out last week, actually, as of the date that we're recording this called House of Hunger by Alexis Henderson. Maggie, what were your first impressions of this book?
0: My expectations for this book were really high because this was probably in my top three most anticipated books of the year. I pre-ordered this one way back in January, which is not something I typically do. And I think that my first impressions were that they basically lived up to all of the excitement I had for it. I had read this author's debut novel, two years ago maybe and absolutely adored it and this is very very different from the year of the witching but it has a lot to say i think in a very very short novel i think the one thing that i struggled with is i and i don't usually say this but i almost wish it was 100 pages longer i think that a lot of things happened really fast and I wish that there was just a little bit more time for the build up, but overall really enjoyed it, thought it was a really smart novel that we're going to have a lot to discuss about. What about you?
1: Yeah, so I only knew about this book because of Maggie, and I had also read The Year of the Witching, I think on Maggie's recommendation, and I didn't realize that we were reading this book until I looked at our schedule, and about two weeks before, I was like, oh shit, I don't know how to get this book, because I checked the library that I work at and it was there were a ton of holds and it hadn't come out yet and I was like oh crap I'm too late to the game and then I the day it came out or the day before it came out maybe no I think it was the day it came out I see it on the new bookshelf at my library and I pick it up and I start kind of reading it and then I go up to my boss and I'm like is there any way I can cheat my way to the front to get this (laughs) book And my boss was like, no. And uh, we checked and there were 10 million holds. So I couldn't do that. But I did have it for two days before, uh, <laughs> before I went to who it rightfully belonged to. And I actually just, I finished the book a few days ago because I bought it. I ended up buying it on audiobook. And I didn't actually have it. I was just reading it in between doing things at work. So I had gotten a, about 10 chapters in reading the paper copy and then just finished the rest on audio. And it was it was really fantastic. I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. I did the Year of the Witching purely through audio and listeners may or may not know about me. While I love audiobooks, I tend to choose more fluffy reads for audio because it's really hard for me to get into denser material or something that it has intense world building, because it's just hard to pay attention to. And I think that's kind of what happened with Alexis Henderson's first book, The Year of the Witching. I just kept on having to repeat things. So I think I enjoyed the experience of House of Hunger more. And I agree with you, it does have a lot of really smart things to say. Although there is a There is something I do want to explore with you that I'm sure we'll get into in the episode that I kind of that kind of surprised me and made me really question about the messaging of this novel and whether I I truly agreed with it. So let's start off with maybe some of our guiding questions, Miss
0: Maggie. And I had one big flag too. So I'm really curious to see if your flag is the same thing as my flag.
1: I wonder if it is. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I think through these guiding questions, we'll definitely get a sense. So I guess my first question is how much agency do our main characters have? And we really only have one main character, but I guess we can include the other.
0: Actually, let's give a summary for the book before, before I get started. Miss Maggie, do you want to give us a summary? <laughs> yeah, I can give a summary. So this book follows Marion, who lives in Prane where she is lower working class. It's very reminiscent of 19th century London, I would say, the setting. And she is essentially a scullery maid for a very rich woman. She's living in the slums. She has what she feels is very few opportunities in her life, partially because she's taking care of a sick and relatively abusive brother. One day she sees in the papers an ad in the marriage section for blood maids and she decides that she really wants to take her fate into her own hands and that anything basically is better than what she's doing. And she ends up answering the ad after going through some trials and tribulations to get there. She's picked to go north to the mystical north that people in the south don't really know very much about and there she embarks on a journey as a blood maid and falls in love slash is kind of stockholm syndrome into falling in love with lisavette who is the countess of the house of hunger and there she discovers that while the concept of blood maids is relatively sketchy on the surface in a very obvious way there is even more twisted and messed up things happening below the surface as she's kind of haunted by this concept of the wretch throughout the entire novel until she finds the wretch at the end. Yeah,
1: it's a very cool, gothic-y, kind of almost a new take on vampirism. I- I'd say, actually, while you were giving us the summary, before we get into our getting questions, I want to explore a little bit about form with you, Maggie. Because Alexis Henderson and both of these novels now, these are both The Year of the Witching and House of Hunger, they're both kind of historical novels with very light fantasy elements. I mean, House of Hunger really doesn't have, it has very, very, very light magic. But they 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 also take place in completely different worlds. And that isn't something that I see a lot when we're looking at a more historical setting. It's something I see when we're looking into the future, where you have a completely different world, uh, or a, a, an adjacent world, but the history is different. But it's not something I really see that often in terms of history. And I, I just wanted to know, I guess, what your thoughts are on that form and that writing choice, and if you've seen it before, and how that enables Henderson to work with the stories that she's working with.
0: Okay, so your question is basically sort of about the fact that these take place almost in alternate historical timelines with this mix of horror and kind of light fantasy that's happening. Yes. Yes, I've seen it done before. I think Alexis Henderson does it particularly well. I think that she does it very smartly because it almost reads to me like an alternate historical timeline. Because things are often so similar that it's clear what historical period's being referenced, right? Here it's very clear that we're referencing 19th century London. We're just putting it in a different setting I think partially to enable some of that fantasy element in the year of the witching. It's very clear that we're talking about Puritan early colonial new England. We're just putting it in a fantasy setting. And I think that the interesting thing for me is that the, the alternate settings in both novels, I think further two different messages. I think that in the year of the witching, the alternate setting really allowed Henderson to explore accusations of witchcraft and what that meant in people's day-to-day lives in a way that an author couldn't if they were basing it in a more accurate to our world historical setting and i think in this novel and house of hunger we're able to explore exploitation and exploitation of labor in a much more direct way by removing it from London, removing it from 19th century England and placing it in its own world. Because I think to me that was so much of the point of what the story of The Blood was. It was a story of exploitation and it was a story of what happens when you gild exploitation. And I think to me that was a really smart choice here. She could have done this as a vampire novel in 19th century London as we recognize it today... But I think it would have taken away, ultimately, from her overall message. Whereas doing it this way let her really focus in on what she was interested in.
1: That was very smart. I agree. Okay, on to the guiding questions. Thank you for that, Maggie. How much agency do our main characters have? And I'm going to include, even though we only have Marion as our main character, I'm going to include the other blood maids, May and Elizabeth. Do you want to take this first, or...? And then I can add on if I see fit
0: <laughs> make you do the labor, sure, although Lisa is complicated as a bloodmaid because she's the count she she is a blood maid she started as a blood maid, but she's also the countess of hunger now, so she's interesting in terms of agency
1: well okay wait, wait just the- so she she's not a bloodmaid in the official capacity, but she did bleed. she was never officially a bloodmaid her mom was though yeah,
0: yeah. I'm sorry, I just I wanted to clarify because you roped her into those other two characters. I think agency in this novel is really complicated because on the one hand, and this is one of the flags I had with the novel, the, the beginning, the very beginning, the choice that Marion makes to go to the north is a choice of agency right it's a choice of taking one's fate in one's hands and making a really hard decision and also very specifically and explicitly going against societal prejudice to do something going against social norms she's she's in a conversation where a close friend when she discovers she's doing this actively and kind of disgustingly judges her right off the bat it, it ruins their friendship almost instantaneously So I think that on the surface, there's a high level of agency happening, but that's then undermined in some ways when she actually gets to the House of Hunger, because she has no agency there and she has no autonomy over her body there. Both in the sense that she is a sex worker, but is not allowed to really set the rules about what is done with her body. And in the sense that she's literally there so that Lisa Vett can drink her blood. And that's a choice that she went into with consent. But a lot of the other things that happen end up going outside of the contract. And the contract is very, it's worded so vaguely that basically you're consenting, quote unquote, to anything and everything that might happen to you, which obviously is not real, true informed consent so i think that the agency gets kind of sticky there and i think that the love story that happens between marion and lisa Vett ends up clouding that even more because it feels very stockholm syndrome-y but then ultimately she realizes what's happening there is fucked up frankly and wrong and she's also able to again take the agency back for herself and say I won't participate in this anymore and I'm not only going to remove myself from this dangerous situation, but she also manages to get the other blood maids out. I think that the place that this was all a flag for me was that I was so excited to see a story about somebody pushing back against societal conventions and really pushing up against that and doing what she thought was best for herself. But then to me, it kind of felt like part of the message inadvertently ended up being that that was ultimately a bad thing because it ends it puts her in such a bad and dangerous situation and she ends up going to the South, fleeing to the South, ostensibly to be in a very similar situation that she was in before. And I don't know, to me, that just didn't sit quite right, especially in a no- novel that was about ultimately labor exploitation, among other things.
1: That's interesting. Okay, so we did have different flags. Huh. I'm sitting with that. So I think, for me, I appreciated how much detail there was and how many different takes we got of the exploitation specifically of Marion. Because this world is so similar to ours, right? We see from the get-go that Marion, under the labor that she does now is still exploited, right? She's still selling her body in a way. And this is a discourse that comes up in, you know, the 21st century capitalist society that we live in, that there's not that much of a difference between sex work and any sort of other work because we're still selling parts of ourselves, right? We're selling our time or we're selling our body. And Marion, in particular has had a really rough life, So in addition to doing this grueling labor, she's often starving and she has to deal with her brother and his addiction and his sickness and his abuse. And I guess to kind of go along that path a little and and sidetrack for a second, one of the things I really appreciate about this novel is that all of our villains, for the most part, I guess, not most of our villains... Or even just our two, our two main ones, I think, which in the beginning are Raoul, Marion's brother, and then towards the end, Elizabeth, are both depicted really well because they're 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 our main abusers, but we also get to see how they came to be that way, and not to spoil the, well, yeah, I don't know. Elizabeth has a confrontation with her brother. And she feels really guilty about it, but she has to have this confrontation in order to leave to get herself out to, to into what she thinks is going to be a better situation.
0: Marion does, not Sorry, Elizabeth. Sorry,
1: Marion has this confrontation with her brother to get herself into a better situation. And even then, she still loves him, even though she recognizes that in order to put herself first, she has to break away from him. So I think that Marion's situation in terms of exploitation reminds me more of that system of abuse and it kind of parallels to how this book i for me really accurately depicts abuse as in these are real people the abusers who have been dealt significant trauma and have made really poor choices that are informed by that trauma. And we see Marion herself really straddle that line, at least internally, throughout the entire novel. And so, too, in terms of the Bloodmaid situation, I don't, I didn't get that sense that the book was being like, well, you should have gone with society, versus it was just depicting kind of an accurate situation where, you know, a, a girl who is in poverty is given a chance to get out of poverty, right, and she tries to make the best decision for herself with the information that she has, but also right from the get-go, the book is very explicit about the exploitation. Before we find out all of the sketchy stuff that isn't in the contract or the ways that her contract will be exploited or not honored, you know, the the book makes a point of showing a scene where Marianne is going for her interview for, for a blood maid and she's talking to this person who she views, the taster, who she views as being really sympathetic towards her, but he's also asking her these really big red flag predatory questions, right? She's telling him that she doesn't have a family and he he the book makes a point to be like, he seemed to smile and nod at this, like the, this seemed to please him. And so, yeah, I don't know. I just didn't get the that idea that that's where the book came down hard on. About, hey, you shouldn't make decisions that go against the grain of society. I think it's more looking at what society is and how we have to survive within this fucked up system.
0: That's interesting, and I, I think that I can see that perspective. I think that the place where it felt sticky to me is the layers and levels of regret that marion has about so many things as she's leaving and i think that on the one hand that's very human and very relatable because i think you're right that something that this book does really well is that everybody's motivations and backstories even for characters that we don't see very much of like raul we don't see very much of in the grand scheme of things you can they feel like people, right? And they feel like people who are reacting to people's situations, even when they do that poorly, and even when their reactions harm others. You can see the the logic of all of this. So I see the logic of the emotional level of Marion's regrets about all of these things. But I don't know. I think that there was just something about the way the ending was framed that didn't feel congruent to me with the rest of that messaging. And I don't know that I can really put put my finger on it but that was just personally the feeling that i had of incongruent messaging leaving the end but i do appreciate your pushback on that because i do think that a lot of what you said i agree with it just i don't know something about the ending and the the way some of that character choice and character feeling was related made me feel as a reader a little bit like wait what are we saying now but it's possible that it was also just me
1: all right speaking of messaging i want to get into my red flag and i think this relates to the care to the idea of character agency so my big red flag (laughs) is the depiction of elise who is kind of a minor character in this story but is one of the blood maids and she is repeatedly called weak because she loves her cat and because she's kind and empathetic and so i think that this goes into the agency question because now now talking through this with you, Mackie, I think that my, my perspective of this book is that now that we've set the scene up for this is a hard, horrible world, it seems like the only way, it seems like part of the messaging for getting out of this world or getting ahead in this world is this idea of strength. And it's sort of borderline asserted in this book, even though Marian doesn't end up doesn't end up turning into a complete monster like Elizabeth. She she kills two people, right? And so that is asserted as strength in, in this instance. Although she is killing her abusers. So this is, this is something I'm going to need you to help me with, Maggie, because this idea of Elise being weak really got to me. And I don't know if that's accurate, because we don't get enough of Elise's backstory, but the idea that she's weak simply because she is empathetic, because she loves her cat and refuses to leave him behind really struck me. And I guess too, it it just it was a lot juxtaposed with this idea of strength being the the willingness to kill, essentially, right? The willingness to harm. And as we're talking about Marian and her choices and her agency, it also really strikes me that this book is about her, her own horror and struggle to not turn into the abuser like we see with Elizabeth or Raoul, who at one point, maybe both of them were good people. At least we know that of Raoul, but we also know that they were both exploited in really serious and harmful ways and abused themselves. And that's part of why each of them, turns into this monster. So, yeah, I don't know, Maggie. Help me out with some of these big feelings, please.
0: Oh, see, that's interesting. I don't know that I really picked up on that in the same way at all. I think that for me, that was so clearly, and again, like, this was just personal, but it was so clearly counteracted by the fact that anytime Marion thought some of those things about Elise, it was often immediately followed up with Marion's thoughts about the fact that she was really straddling that line, and it was so specific about the fact that It like that thoughts like that were essentially something that Marion was struggling with and that she kind of knew that it wasn't right and then still felt that way. I kind of read her relationship with Elise and some of that discussion about her, although you're right, she's a very minor character in the book, so it's hard to, I think, really pick up exactly what was going on there. But I viewed a lot of the way Elise was portrayed as jealousy in some ways. Because I think that Marion really struggles with the idea that life has made her hard, and that life has made everybody she loved hard. and is and now it's it's making her struggle with turning into a monster or not turning into a monster. And Elise comes from a different background and a different backstory, but ostensibly has also had a very difficult life. And the same water that hardened the egg softened the potato sort of situation. So that was, I think, some of how I took some of that. But I think that the point of Elisa's character was that she was somebody who was, for whatever reason, being protected by the other characters. But I don't know, for me, that the way that was executed, it came off the way that I anticipate Alexis Henderson intended it to. Because I can see what you mean, that it sort of made her out to just kind of be... Not like a bad person, but a, a a weak person and a person who needs protecting for bad reasons versus warrants protecting for good reasons. And I know that that's a fine line and kind of a weird distinction to make, but that's kind of... I think the second one is maybe what it was intended, and the first one was kind of how it came off, if that makes sense.
1: Okay, I understand what you're saying. Thank you. I think that I talked through some of my issues, and I think that you affirmed... <laughs> <laughs> some of what I've I'm I'm coming to terms with now which is that this is maybe as we we discuss, this is a novel about Marion figuring out how to be an okay human in this really cruel horrible world and that those feelings are maybe coming from that more hard and potentially evil side of her <laughs> okay I want to talk a little bit about Elizabeth's agency. In this it, when we meet her Elizabeth kind of has a lot of agency and when as the novel progresses we find out that she's that she's making choices to do really really horrible things that she doesn't have to do because I say kind of has a lot of agency because she is a, she is a noble and she has this expectation upon her that is life that that could be life threatening, right? Because if she doesn't behave a certain way, it could be seen as weakness, and the other noble houses will go to war with her. And she's got maybe a disease? I don't know. I guess we should explore that next, this idea of the hunger <laughs> and what that is and what that's a metaphor for. <laughs> she's supposedly in this world got a disease. I don't know if that's a metaphor or if it is literal that she she needs blood for so that maybe also takes away from her agency. She's got this health agency, and then she's also got these restrictions based off of nobility that are actually real and life-threatening. And then she also has part of her capacity to be kind. I would say. Her, her kindness capacity is also hindered by the abuse, or at least how she thinks of it by the abuse that she faces a child because her father was abusive so what what are your thoughts on Elizabeth and her agency
0: I think for me the interesting thing about Elizabeth as things continued to go on in the novel were I guess twofold the first being that I think that her character was a really interesting portrayal of the ways in which power structures are really complicated and press in on people in Different ways and in different contexts. And what makes a character seem very privileged on the surface and they would have all kinds of agency and have all kinds of power gets more complicated when you view them from different lenses of marginalization. Because as Harmony mentioned, again, Elizabeth's a Noble, so in many ways she has lots of political power, she has lots of wealth, so she has lots of class power, but her Sexual preferences, (laughs) her sexuality isn't necessarily the most accepted thing because she's kind of expected to produce an heir and it's flagged throughout the novel the fact that nobody thinks she's going to get married and what does that mean for carrying on the house of hunger the fact that she's a woman means that she's constantly fighting tooth and nail to keep her place on the throne of the house of hunger this is further exacerbated by the fact that she was had out of wedlock and her mother was a bloodmaid even though her father was a noble and then on top of this as harmony said we're dealing with the Hunger. And then you mix all of this up with the fact that I think that even out of regards of all of this, Elizabeth does have the most agency out of everyone in the book. Because she's not under contract. <laughs> she does have a place of political power. And even though her power is maybe limited, more limited than some of the other nobles, even though she's having different pressures of marginalization pushed upon her, she still chooses the pretty much most evil path possible. So she ends up abusing that power in multitudes of ways. And at the same time, my heart really broke for her. Because I think, again... Alexis Henderson especially in such a short novel did such a fabulous job of crafting characters and crafting backstories and I think I could empathize with her in seeing how she thought she was backed into a corner and that she was almost making the only choices left to her even though as a reader I could see a million ways in which that assumption was completely wrong and she had so many escape routes you know. So I don't know that that fully answers your question, but I think for me, that's at least at least kind of an analysis of Elizabeth in terms of agency. And even though she probably doesn't have full, complete, unadulterated agency, she's still at the top of the hierarchy here and she abuses her power pretty much every turn.
1: Yeah, I think that's important because towards the end of the novel, it's really hard to not think that she's a sociopath. But I don't think she necessarily is in in the in in the idea of the i in terms of a sociopath just doesn't have feelings because there are there are plenty of references in the novel to her feeling trapped right and she doesn't want to do the things that she's doing which she could she could stop doing but she does not to and and she does say that she actually did love marianne And, yeah, I don't know. And she also, it's just that this idea, she she operates with this worldview, again, informed by abuse, but that doesn't mean that it's okay. That the strongest person is the one who will make the kill, and that in order to keep your power, to keep your agency, you have to exploit other people. Okay, I want to talk about the hunger now, Maggie. What the fuck? is the hunger in this book? What is the hunger? Is this supposed to be real? Like what, what is going on with the hunger? Okay, you go, you go.
0: I think how I read it at the very least is that it was both real and metaphor because I think that, I think that there is enough depiction of Elizabeth being physically ill in the novel to believe that the hunger is having some sort of physical effect on her in the way that she talks about But I think that the hunger, in terms of its metaphorical use, is actually in some ways everything you just said. I think that the hunger is a metaphor for power and greed. And the fact that when you have power, I think a lot of human instinct is to do whatever it is to continue chasing that power and to continue exercising that power. And maybe positing, although I'm not entirely certain about this, that... The further you get down the power pipeline, the harder it is to see the way out of the power pow- pi- pipeline. Because there is so many ways in which Elizabeth does talk about being trapped, and there's so many images about Lisovet being trapped. But again, as the reader on the outside, you're looking at this and being like, "Girly, you're you're in a you're in a big hallway. Like just sidestep left, essentially." So I think for me, that was what the hunger was. Was yes, something she was legitimately physically dealing with but more importantly, a metaphor for the ways in which power can warp people and take them down a really dangerous and heartful path where it seems like the only way forward is more.
1: There are so many things I want to talk about in relationship to this book, but I'm going to go off on a tangent now. <laughs> so I had a theory about the hunger as I was reading it, and I'm not sure, I don't think that it was proven true, but I want to hear your perspective of it. I thought that what was going to end up happening is, because Elizabeth was bled as a child, that that is what caused the hunger. Or perhaps she she ended up poisoning her own blood to to poison her father to stop him from abusing her. I thought maybe that was in relation to her sickness. And... Part of my evidence for this theory is the fact that Marion, after she is given too much blood to Elizabeth, ends up having to drink blood to restore her health and well-being and again, I don't think that this theory was proven in the book, but i like i I like that as a concept and idea, and I wonder if Henderson was playing with that at all. The idea that we are hungry for greed and power the more that our life force is drawn from us and I want to know what you think about it Maggie
0: oh that's interesting that is a really interesting concept I think the one thing again that's tricky in the book is that by the end we know so much about her father's relationship with the hunger and her father comes from such a very stereotypically powerful background you know he's he's ostensibly like a, a cis straight white dude who's also noble and very powerful and I think that he maybe complicates that theory a little bit but I I don't know I don't know if it's going out on a limb so much to almost say that because the only other characters we see in the novel are female really and the and the only people who are dealing with this are female it's that something activated that in them something had to happen to them to draw the hunger out whereas with her father it was at least presented in the novel present the entire time I don't know I don't know. I feel like that's one of the things that really makes me wish that the book was 100 pages longer is I really wanted to explore The Hunger more. And on the one hand, I, I respect this novel because I think that it's the kind of magical realism slash fantasy novel that's there's such light fantasy happening that it's just going to exist as it is and it's and it's not going to get explained. As a reader, you just have to be okay with that. I really dig that in books and I think that Henderson did it well here. But I think that because The Hunger was also serving as a metaphor, I would have liked to see it play a slightly bigger role in the novel, just because I wanted more sense, more chance to wrap my mind around exactly what the metaphor was saying. And I think that's furthered by the fact that Lisavette was a fascinating character to me, and I would have liked to see a little bit more of her backstory. Uh, maybe as a flashback or something like that. But then, of course, at the same time, I'm also reminded of the fact that Part of Elizabeth's power in this story is that she's the only person who gets to say how all of that went down because everybody else is dead. So she gets she has the agency essentially to spin that story however so we just have to trust her and by the end it's really hard to trust her and how she says everything went down. So I don't know.
1: I do wonder sorry I'm not going to give up on this theory. It's it's now canon in my head. I do wonder if 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 the hunger is a full metaphor for the way that exploitation works and the way that exploitation takes hold in people of power and privilege, I do wonder if, even though Elizabeth's father is a more seemingly privileged person, if kind of like in real life, right, where people who are white are still harmed by white supremacy because white supremacy... Exists with the idea that it's okay to dehumanize people, right? In privileged families, you often encounter ideas, even if they're not as physically harmful, that end up being harmful because you've accepted the premise of dehumanization. And those ideas are maybe even more prevalent because you're operating on this system of dehumanization. And I wonder if that could also affect the noble blood in particular, even though they're the ones doing the exploitation, right? They're sickened by these harmful actions that they've accepted and are operating as their systems now. But now I want to pivot. Okay, I want to talk... <laughs> I want to talk about the Stockholm Syndrome and why, why it is that all of the blood maids are so likely to fall for Elizabeth or or likely to because we get one of the beautiful things one of the beautiful craft things that I think is important to this story is that in each new chapter we get the voice of another blood maid that isn't a character although I think Cicely who is one of the blood maids does end up getting part of a voice and you get little snippets from each woman's diary and I think that's wonderful because these are people who are so horribly exploited and who don't get any name recognition throughout history and so I think that's a great little rewriting of history thing that Henderson is playing with there what what do we think about the Stockholm syndrome because it seems to happen for every blood maid in some capacity there's this sort of losing of yourself and this sort of falling in love with your noble person
0: Yeah I think it's complicated because on the one hand I think that all of the blood maids experience it to a certain extent but then you only the the people who experience it the most right because part of the premise of the novel is that all of the blood maids are in literal hierarchical order so Marion comes in and she's the fifth blood maid and she's at the bottom of the boat and then relatively suddenly becomes the first bloodmaid and replaces Cecilia because Elizabeth just becomes basically obsessed with Marion and they fall into this deep infatuation with each other. But everybody does seem to feel it to a certain extent. I think that what's tricky for me about all of this is the way in which all of this is through Marion's perspective so i think it's sometimes hard to know how the other blood maids that she's with feel if they're really just as infatuated with elizabeth as she is or if they recognize the fact that marion is in a favored position with the person who pays them and the person who has an ability to make them rich and there's direct competition happening there and that skews marion's view of things at the beginning of the novel because she thinks that things are going down between them because she can only see the competition and then it skews things at the end of the novel because Marion's so fucking into Elizabeth. And she just almost can't imagine how anybody else wouldn't be into Elizabeth. And the reason I bring that up is because as the novel goes on, the snippets that you get from the Bloodmaid's diaries become more and more negative and they become less and less infatuated. So Either everybody falls into it and then falls out of it, or there are some people who just never bought into it to begin with. And that's interesting. And that's hard to kind of piece together and figure out. I do wonder how much of it is coping mechanism, especially when you have to literally share your blood with somebody, which is the most intimate act I can really physically imagine having, having to do with somebody and knowing that you're keeping them alive And then also on top of that, the weird, again, related to the exploitation, right, but especially at the beginning, the weird kind of hero-savior effect that happens because the initial boost in quality of life is so big by taking this job. And this person is the person who chose you, who saw something specific in you who thinks that your palette is the most exquisite one ever. So I think that there's a certain level at which there's maybe a magic thing happening, potentially, that's related to the fantasy element. I think it's also related to the exploitation element a little bit. And then I also wonder how much of it is just Marion, you know? That's hard. Because Marion, I think, becomes kind of a really unreliable narrator for quite a bit of this. And it's interesting because I think by the end, she's a lot more reliable, but it does make some of the stuff that happens in the middle harder and more interesting to parse out as a reader.
1: That's fair. I would say we see, at least from Evie's character, that not everyone is as infatuated as Marion. But I will say that there is plenty of evidence that other people have felt what Marianne feels. Elizabeth states that plenty of girls have fallen in love with her and that they all give her their heart. We see it with Cicely. I think that we see a direct parallel with what Marianne's going through through this idea of the wretched because Elizabeth calls Marianne her wretched one at one point. We know that A girl who used to live in one of Marion's rooms referred to herself as wretched. We know that Cicely refers to herself as wretched. And we also see it through the other diaries, this idea of love. And even if we don't know how they feel, how the other blood maids feel about Elizabeth, I think Irene or Irene, is it Irene or Irene? It's spelled
0: Irene at the very least.
1: Okay, I don't remember how the audiobook said it. Irene or Irene one of them one of those those variations of how you're supposed to say the name she says but Elizabeth loves us emphatically at one point in the text when Marion is trying to convince the other blood maids to escape because she doesn't want to believe it so I do think that there's ample evidence that supports that this idea that other people are falling in love outside of Marion and I agree a lot with what you're saying about the exploitation and I want to bring it to a macro place because that's how the Harmony do and turn it all into metaphor because that's how the Harmony do and explore the idea that if this is a story about a capitalist society and how exploitative it is that once we reach
0: if she says <laughs> if it's a story yes
1: um i want to explore the idea that once we've reached success right success in quotation marks because i don't know that anyone actually reaches success in this system <laughs> i think that you just get there and you're like oh shit i have to do more work fuck this <laughs> Maggie's laughing if only if only you listeners could see. I think that it, I I want to explore the idea that you've gotten there, right? And now you feel this sort of loyalty to the fact that your your circumstances have changed because now you have material wealth. And and maybe that is a sort of Stockholm syndrome in of itself. And that's that's my big airy big macro metaphor.
0: What do you think about that, Maggie? <laughs> I think that that's spot on to a certain extent. I think that I think that the whole the whole selling of capitalism and classism in general is about creating solidarity with class levels above you versus class levels that you're at and below you right That's why people get so fucking up in arms about billionaire taxes even though they will literally never ever 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 become a billionaire and they have way more in common than somebody who's been forced out of their home and is currently experiencing housing insecurity than they do with bill gates so it's so to me that i think really adds up but i do want to say that i think that in the book it does play out with some magic and some very stockholm syndrome intensity i think that it's i think that that meaning is very over exaggerated in the book to make the point versus this being how that system plays out for the most part in real life but That's largely because they're falling in love and having lots of lesbian sex everywhere constantly.
1: (laughs) Finally! (laughs) Guys, that was hard. I just had a big mute. I just had a big mute moment. Okay, what do you think the book's prescription for this is, for us, that we can bring into the wider world? What do you think that we can take from this book? And what do you think it's telling us about how to live in this horrible, exploitative capitalist society?
0: I think that even though I have shaky feelings about how it plays out at the end, the prescription here is to be unafraid to take risks to if you genuinely think that they will help you. But then also on top of that, be aware of who you are potentially hurting when you're taking those risks to move forward and understand that as we gain more power, we become susceptible to the idea that power is what we need. And then... Simultaneously to all of this, I would say that it's also possible, even if you find yourself in a bad position, even if after you've taken a really big risk that goes against societal stands, to still disagree with where you have end up and to change course. I think that this book makes a really compelling case that the idea of being a monster and monstrosity is not a black and white thing. There's not good and bad people. There's not good and evil people. There's a lot of people existing in a morally gray space where every choice you make really matters in terms of the impact that you have on the world. And you're not always going to get it right every time. But there's a lot of choices you can make even if you're going down a path that you feel like ends up being wrong to still redeem yourself.
1: I agree. I also think that it's telling us that sometimes violence is necessary. Not to make this into a let's do a revolution podcast, but there are multiple times in which Marion has to use violence and, in fact, murder in order to escape from her abusers. And I think that that's a message that we should bring with us. Not necessarily condoning murder at all. Please let that be noted on the record. But I think that we need to set really firm boundaries and even though we can understand where a person who is an abuser is coming from and why they are being exploitative it does not mean that we should put their needs or their wishes above our own well-being so i think that that is an important aspect of this novel okay maggie what are we reading next week
0: i have no idea what are you reading right now as a person
1: i am reading paybacks a witch by lena harper and it's delightful and I love it. Actually, I think I just finished it. I think I may have 20 more minutes. What about
0: you, Maggie? I'm between books right now. The I just finished before the podcast, How We Fall Apart by Katie Zhao. And I think the next thing that I'm going to pick up is my government is trying to kill me on the ride home. So very nice. Prescient. <laughs> uh, I don't know off the top of my head what we're doing next week, but it is going to be another one of our Miami Book Fair interviews. So that's really exciting. Keep an eye out for that, my Yay! friends.
1: Okay. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.com Club and clicking Read Along with the Show. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.